Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. What characterized the final years of America's engagement in the Vietnam War, specifically the policy of the Nixon administration? We're in studio with one of the nation's foremost experts on the Vietnam War, Gregory Dattis. Dattis is a professor of history at Chapman University and director of its master's program in war and society. He's also a West Point graduate and a retired Army colonel. He specializes in Cold War and Vietnam War history and is the author of a new book by Oxford University Press, Withdrawal, Reassessing America's Final Years in Vietnam. Greg, welcome. All right, thanks for having me. How did you come to write this book? Um, I guess starting first off, how did you come to study Vietnam War history? Uh, I think part of it, large part of it, just had to do with uh, being an Army officer. I'd, I'd uh, gone to West Point in the mid-1980s, and uh, the Army as a whole was still kind of reconciling um, what had happened in Vietnam, was still working through some of the major lessons of Vietnam, of dealing with what many had, uh, by then had seen as the Army's first lost war. Um, while I was a cadet at West Point, we still had faculty members that were Vietnam veterans. Um, I still remember uh, reading a book, uh, Summons of the Trumpet, by um, David Palmer, who was our then superintendent. And it was about um, the Vietnam War, and it was mandatory reading for all cadets. So I think growing up in the Army, it was kind of ingrained um, into our professional culture of, of, of thinking about who we were as an organization. and. And it really had, I think, an impact on our organizational identity. And, you know, when you think about the um, our first kind of main incursion in the modern era in Iraq with the Operation Desert Storm and President Bush saying at the time we've, we kicked the Vietnam syndrome, um, it clearly was, was uh, um, still integral, I think, to how we were thinking about um, who we were as an army. And so as I got older and then it gone, um, I taught at West Point um, and then as... Um, uh, we started our more recent incursions in Iraq in 2003, 2004. Um, I, I thought it was a really good time to kind of go back and, and reevaluate some of the, the key lessons that were um, still with us in Vietnam. And one of those was um, thinking about how the Army was measuring its effectiveness and progress in Vietnam. And the standard storyline was that this was a war of attrition and all we cared about was killing the enemy. And so all that we really thought about in terms of measuring our effectiveness was the body count. And what I found as we went back and did some more research was that in fact was not the case. And so part of, I think my approach to Vietnam, um, and the history of Vietnam has been reassessing kind of the standard storylines of how we think about Vietnam. Was it simply a war of attrition? Were army officers in the 1960s wedded to this conventional World War II thinking, or did they actually consider um, the, the non-military aspects of this largely unconventional conflict? Um, was it true that, the, um, that we won the war in Vietnam but lost the war at home? So part of, I think, my approach to this era um, as a historian has been to kind of test and, and contest some of those standard um, storylines about how we see ourselves um, and how we um, live with the supposed lessons of Vietnam. You begin the book by comparing two commencement addresses given by President Nixon and or President Kennedy and mm -hmm. Nixon to the cadets at West Point, Kennedy in 62 and President Nixon in 71. Uh, you write that the you write that the these are sort of bookends, and they suggest to how a decade 
decades worth of war had reshaped presidential narratives yeah. on the limits of American power. Um, how, how so? I think if we if we look at the the Kennedy um, address to the Corps of Cadets, it's it's very aspirational. There is this belief that um, with the right amount of of, um, of power applied by smart individuals, that we really can achieve anything. There is this um, there's this almost assumption that's that's driving American foreign policymakers in the early Kennedy uh, years that um, that we really can achieve anything. That this is this truly is the greatest generation that comes out of World War II, and there there aren't any limits to American power. And I think by the time you get to um, to President Nixon, it's there's. A, there's a necessity to kind of look at the world through a more sober lens. And I think Nixon does that. And when he, when he speaks to um, the cadets, there's, there's quite a bit of honesty there, right? That there's a, a sense that there, um, there are limits um, uh, to what Americans can achieve and, and that we have to kind of grapple with that. And it's okay to grapple with that. And, um, and so I think what you see by the time you get to Nixon's presidency in terms of um, foreign policy is, is some of those key assumptions that were driving um, earlier administrations about the the unlimited nature of American power. I think the new administration comes in and, and almost necessarily has to reconsider those assumptions based on what they're seeing in Vietnam. Was it really a test of American power? Was the United States just caught in in an asymmetric war, not like any other great powers, Russia and Afghanistan? The country's still powerful, but the war is not, it's just a, I guess, it could be considered a futile use of that power. Yeah, and once, I mean, it it does get to this larger question of whether the war is winnable or not, right? That there's a strand of of American scholarship that that says that, um, that the war just simply was an unwinnable war based on Vietnam. Vietnamese history and culture and, and the larger objectives that were at play. Um, I think we need to be careful with that because it suggests that there's an inevitability to this. And, um, you know, I think um, clearly America could have won. I think that the, the key aspect of that is how do we define victory? What would have been the cost of that victory? And I think both the Johnson and Nixon administrations are, are kind of looking at victory, but also looking at the cost of that victory. And I think certainly by the time you get to um, Nixon's administration, there's a clear realization that that it's no longer worth the cost, that the benefits coming out of uh, an extended American presence in Vietnam, um, a concept of what victory will look like, it's just not worth the cost anymore. And I think it's pretty telling. If you look at Nixon's memoirs, he, um, he says that he enters the presidency realizing that traditional military victory is no longer possible. And, and that's, to me, is just an amazing admission, right, that, that the president is coming in and suggesting um, to his foreign policy apparatus and to his senior military commanders that, look, we, we've tried this for quite some time now, and that military victor traditionally defined is not possible. And I think that's, that's again, a... Um, um, a pretty honest and sober appraisal of, of American power. Is this early in the in the administration that he? I mean, he says before he, in his memoirs he says before he even takes the presidency that he realizes that um, um, the total military victory is not possible. I mean, that that's he says I began the uh, with the fundamental pre- premise that total military victory was no longer possible, and so. As he's coming into office, then um, what he's saying is the primary mission is no longer a traditional military victory a la 
World War II, that there's not going to be a, a, a um, an unconditional surrender document signed here. Um, but that the premise then is to, to really transition the war over to the South Vietnamese fully um, and to hopefully ensure that we leave something stable behind. What is, I guess, in terms of, uh, I guess, the overall strategy of the United States, mm -hmm. what does what does victory look like? Is it a geopolitical victory? Is it a psychological victory? Yeah, I well, I think it's both, right? Um, I think it's a it's certainly a psychological victory. So I think, um, and I think the phrase "peace with honor" speaks to that, right? That there is a that there has to be something that comes out of this that is psychologically um, uh, appealing for those that have sacrificed so much. Um, so I think that's certainly a part of it. I think the geopolitical um, victory, if you will, is is really a um, a repurposing and a um, a realignment of American power and American interests. That my sense is that that President Nixon um, and Kissinger as well come in with the belief that that too much of American focus and too much of American resources are being placed on one small area of the globe. And that in a sense, um, as unfortunate as I think for the South Vietnamese in particular, that South Vietnam is no longer as important to U.S. foreign policy in 1970 as it was in 1960 or 1970, uh, 1965. That, that, um, and, and I think this is important for, for students of Vietnam to, to realize that um, the, the global environment is not static between 1965 and 1970, that it's changing. And, and I think Nixon clearly realizes that as he's looking to re-navigate American foreign policy um, writ large and to, to realign Cold War relationships. And so my sense is that from a ge geopolitical standpoint, the word victory is a way to, um, to depart from Vietnam in a methodical manner that is based on policy rather than collapse, to paraphrase Kissinger, and then to realign American uh, foreign policy objectives toward uh, the relationship between the United States, China, and the Soviet Union. And that means that, again, as unfortunate it may be for the South Vietnamese themselves, that that area of the globe is not as important as it was. Um, and so it's not a traditional victory as we might think of it in a conventional concept. Um, but the victory is, uh, in a sense, reallocating focus and resources to, to larger aspects of American foreign policy. How much does, uh, credibility, um, play a role in this? Uh, it's, it's interesting because, um, I was reading through Kissinger's memoirs the other day and Charles de Gaulle, the French president asks, Dr. Kissinger, why are you in Vietnam? And he says, it's an issue of credibility. Right. And de Gaulle scoffs at Kissinger, telling him, well, your enemy is, in, your enemy is losing credibility in the Middle East. Right. Um, so how much does credibility for the Nixon administration um, play a role in this? I think um, in one sense, too much, um, but it's not just for the Nixon administration. I think it's for Cold War presidencies writ large. I think that much of the Cold War... Um, is about credibility and prestige and, um, and thinking about um, Cold War relationships as a zero-sum relationship, that if the Soviets win, the United States automatically loses or vice versa. 
And so, um, you know, I think you can make a, a, a pretty s solid argument that one of the reasons why the United States enters into Vietnam is because of credibility and prestige. And one of the reasons why the Johnson administration escalates in Vietnam is because of credibility and prestige. That once, um, once we start providing uh, not simply advice, but support to um, the South Vietnamese regime, um, there's almost a sunk cost thinking there. And, and I think that... Uh, what happens with President Johnson and, and to somewhat an extent Nixon as well, that the credibility of the nation becomes conflated with individual credibility and prestige, that I can't fail in Vietnam, not simply for the United States, but also for me personally as a, as a president, as a politician, as a, as a person. Um, but again, I think from President Nixon's standpoint and from the viewpoint of, of Kissinger, who's negotiating the settlement in Paris, both of them believe that, that part of this process of, of, um, of refocusing American effort away from South Vietnam is credibility, that they have to do this as a matter of policy to ensure American credibility because that's the only way that this realignment um, and refashioning of Cold War relationships is going to work. That if we lose credibility coming out of Vietnam, we're no longer going to be able to, um, to, um, to have that relationship that we want with China or the Soviet Union. So I think in, um, it very much drives um, the process of uh, withdrawing from Vietnam. And in part, I think it also helps explain partially um, why it takes so long to, to withdraw from Vietnam. Essentially, I mean, does it make it look like if we want to do diplomacy of China with China, um, if we get out of Vietnam, um, it hurts our if we get out of Vietnam in a too precipitous manner, uh, it hurts our credibility with China, who's trying to offset their right. um, um, diplomacy with the with the Russians, or does it hurt credibility more with, I guess, our allies around the globe, who are crucial to our you know, the future of our Southeast Asia policy. My sense is it's, it's less about our allies and more about negotiating with China and, and the Soviet Union, that if, we, if we're seen as failing in Vietnam, that that will hamper our efforts to, um, um, to serve as a credible, um, not just adversary, but a, a, a new potentially partner in, in this new Cold War era of detente. What is um, the first study memorandum uh, that Nixon and Kissinger put out is NSSM-1, National mm -hmm. Security Study Memorandum 1. Uh, what does is, what is that entail? It's really a, um, a forcing mechanism for, um, for the White House to, um, to reevaluate uh, American strategy inside South Vietnam and to... to have these agencies that are running the war, uh, the Military Assistance Command in Vietnam, MACV, CIA, um, a whole host of agencies to um, to relook at, at some of the key components of American strategy in Vietnam and see what's working, see what's not, um, and see what needs to be changed as um, as the new administration comes in. Um, now, there's I think there's clearly some historical debate about this of whether this process that was being run. Um, from the National Security Council staff um, was just a way for um, for the Nixon administration to get some time to to get its footing um, as it was taking over the White House to um, to just kind of give these agencies uh, a few months to weeks and months to just um, be occupied with this 
the study. But I think really what it is is a um, it's a way to um, to have a bottom up approach of of having um, these agencies that are running the war um, give an assessment of how well it's going. So it can turn into some policy options for Kissinger and Nixon. And ultimately, I think what it does is it feeds into this kind of holistic approach that that, that Nixon conceives um, in terms of withdrawing from Vietnam. And what is that, what is that holistic approach? He really talks about it in, as, uh, as one of five pillars. And so, you know, in my argument in withdrawal, part of it is that this very holistic strategy, um, which I think is necessary, um, is also outside of the capacity of especially the military assistance command of Vietnam. So when you look at Nixon's memoirs, and then I think when you look at all the archival material here in the presidential um, uh, archives, what you see is, is, and Nixon calls this five key pillars. And so the first is Vietnamization, which really means um, turning over the war to the South Vietnamese, not just from a military standpoint, but also from a political standpoint. Um, so it's not, uh, it's a policy of allowing the South Vietnamese not only to govern themselves, but also to defend themselves. Um, the second piece of this is pacification, um, which has been ongoing for for years now. There's part of, uh, partially an argument that it's not until Abrams takes over that pacification is part of American strategy. I don't think that's correct. Um, I think pacification has been an integral part of American uh, military strategy for quite some time. Um, and this this aspect of the of strategy is trying to um, not only protect the South Vietnamese at the village level, but also to to establish linkages between the rural population and the Saigon government, which has been a challenge throughout, um, because this is really, I think, with the heart of the war, um, especially the heart of the political war inside South Vietnam. Um, the third aspect of the strategy is diplomatic isolation of China and the Soviet Union um, to, to kind of isolate Hanoi, um, which ultimately I, I'm not so sure how successful that, that part of the strategy is. Um, I, I don't think that um, Kissinger, as he's working through negotiations, is ever, ever able to kind of totally isolate Hanoi from uh, either one of its benefactors. Um, the fourth piece of this is peace negotiations in Paris, which really is um, both public and private. Um, the private ones being mostly um, run by Kissinger himself. And then finally, a gradual withdrawal of U.S. forces from Vietnam. So when you think about this, right, that this is a pretty holistic approach to, to strategy. Um, it takes into account military aspects, political aspects, diplomatic aspects. This is the, the essence of, of what strategy is. That it's not just focused on the military component of the war, which I think says a lot about um, the thinking that, that Nixon is doing before he even comes to the White House. And we've talked about this before, right? I, I think the wilderness years, as Nixon calls them, I think is so important for him as a, as a grand strategist and a, and a, and a president from a foreign policy perspective, that he comes in to the White House already with pretty significant ideas about what needs to happen in terms of American foreign policy. And so this is a, a, this is a whole of government approach, if you will, to, to withdrawing from Vietnam. Again, I think the, the hard part of this is, is its complexity, that it's all of these necessary components make the strategy itself immensely complex. 
And I think what you have at the, at the implementation level inside South Vietnam, especially for General Creighton Abrams, who is the military commander, is not only trying to balance these, um, these aspects, these pillars, as Nixon calls them, um, but also trying to work through the tensions as they're competing against one another, right? And Kissinger realizes this as well, and so does Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird, that there are just components of this that, that almost n um, necessarily are working against one another. So as an example, uh, Kissinger uh, laments almost throughout the negotiating process, right, that the one key aspect of leverage he has as he's negotiating in Paris are American troops in Vietnam. And so every time there is a withdrawal of American forces, Kissinger feels like he's losing leverage in Paris. Um, for Abrams himself, um, he's trying to fight a war against North Vietnamese regulars who are still operating inside South Vietnam against um, uh, um, certainly an insurgency that has been that is dealt with with defeat during the Tet Offensive, but is not defeated itself. Um, and is, again, trying to work through these really difficult issues of, of pacification, of trying to create some political linkages between the Vietnamese uh, rural population and the Saigon government. And, and I think it just really, in a sense, um, is just outside the capacity of Abrams at the at the implementation level to, to make happen for the president. How do you... I guess how do you do all this? How do you um, adopt all? How do you adopt all these policies yeah. in such a complex policies in such a um, a, a, a very quarrelsome right. political environment yeah. as well? Yeah, and I, I think that's the other key piece of this, right? Is that um, that um, I think one of the the folks that gets left out of the conversation far too often is Melvin Laird, who's the Secretary of Defense, and and I think as a uh, as a congressman from uh, Wisconsin. He comes into the Nixon administration um, with a clear eye of the political um, home front and the 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 problems of maintaining uh, political support, which is already waning after the Tet Offensive. And um, and so you know you see Nixon in his memoirs say that you know the the, the key aspect of making all of this work is time, and the one thing that Nixon doesn't have is time. And so I think that complicates all of this, right, is that you have this very um, complex strategy that needs time to take hold, and that's the one thing that the president doesn't have, and, and Laird realizes that. And so, you know, I think as the administration is already looking towards the 1972 election, um, which I think is normal, is that you've got to start bringing some of these troops home because you just don't have the political support to, to maintain a large American presence because the American population is no longer convinced that the sacrifices are worth it. And so, um, you know, I, I think there are some clear um, linkages here between the war that's going on in South Vietnam and the home front, and, and Nixon has to deal with both of those, uh, which makes it even further complicated. Do you think that had um, they been continued, had the administration been able to fund the war even after they, not fund the war, but, f you know, continue to supply both right. economically and militarily and politically the South Vietnamese after a complete withdrawal, yeah. that um, they would have been able to sustain um, Saigon? I don't, I don't know. I, I, um, that, that's, 
That's certainly the popular counterfactual, right? And and what it does is, um, it's I think it's popular certainly among senior military officers coming out of Vietnam because what that counterfactual allows you then to do is place blame on Congress, right? Look, it wasn't our fault. We we had the war won. We had signed a a, a peace settlement, um, and it was Congress that didn't follow through. And Nixon says this in, um, I believe it's no more Vietnam's, right, that we had won the war and lost the peace. And, and part of losing the peace was because the legislative branch wouldn't fund South Vietnam. The hard part, I think, of that argument um, that, that may not work is that um, what it does is um, it may fund the the Saigon government in terms of military equipment um, and, um, and and other aspects of the, the military conflict, but it, what it doesn't resolve are, are some of the key political issues that, that just are not being answered by American military support or American financial support. And that really is, is, is the, a, a a continued question over who is the legitimate um, government in South Vietnam, and I think more deeply, um, what does it mean to be Vietnamese in the in the modern post-colonial era? And I just don't know how much American funding is going to help answer that question. Now, you know, there's a, a part of this argument is that it, the longer the South Vietnamese government is able to exist as an entity, that they'll be able to work through that. And there, there have been studies done more recently, um, based on Vietnamese sources that argue that, you know, you, you are starting to see the inception of a, a separate South Vietnamese identity by the time you get to the late sixties and early seventies, but it just hasn't taken hold yet. Um, and by the time you get to, um, the North Vietnamese military incursions in 74 and 75, that it's just not, it, it's not strong enough to kind of combat that. And so, you know, if, if, if the Saigon government has American support and lasts longer, it will be able to help develop that sense of identity. Um, and I, I, I see that argument. I'm just not so sure how convinced I am. Um, and part of it is because um, there's still a lot of killing that's going on. And I think we forget that, right? That the peace settlement in Paris in, in January of 1973 doesn't really leave peace. It allows the United States to, to completely withdraw from South Vietnam, but there's no peace coming out of that peace settlement. The, the Vietnamese are still fighting. Um, you know, the, the ink's not even dry on the document, and they're, they've resumed fighting. Um, and so I'm just not so sure that um, any financial support that was continued to be given to the South Vietnamese government would have um, helped them resolve some of the, the the key political issues that were at the heart of this conflict. And, um, and I think this is an important thing for us to think about as we're, we're looking at more recent American military incursions in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere in the world is this is a really difficult thing to do to, to create a new political identity in a time of war. Um, it's just a, such an incredibly difficult task to do. And I think sometimes we, we undervalue that. If we think about just the debates we're having here in the United States, um, a lot of them, healthcare issues over um, Confederate monuments, issues over um, tax laws, um, Supreme Court um, nominees, a lot of it comes down to questions of, of who we are as Americans and, and how do we define American identity. And we're, for the most part, 
uh, for most Americans at least, um, you know, in a time of peace, even even as we're in a kind of continual war abroad for a smaller segment of the American population. Um, but we're wrestling with these kind of very vital questions of who we are as Americans today, and and our society is not at war. And so think about now trying to resolve these same questions if you're a South Vietnamese citizen and your country is at war and you've got North Vietnamese regular army divisions inside your country and you still have a, a resilient insurgency that is fighting inside your country. Um, I, th- I think that that's what makes all of this so incredibly hard. Do you think you, you devote a whole chapter to the concept of Vietnamization? Mm-hmm. Um, and you had mentioned earlier how complex um, the Nixon administration's war policy is. Can you talk a little bit about um, what Vietnamization uh, entailed, um, both from a, um, I guess, a military aspect yeah. and from a politico-economic aspect as well? Right. The uh, the assumption is that you know the first phrase is uh, is de-Americanization. That's the word that's kind of um, uh, there's initial meetings that happen. I believe in March of 1969, uh, Secretary of Defense Laird is having conversation with the president and and Dr. Kissinger, and um, and there's a discussion about how we need to de-Americanize, which is basically the withdrawal piece of it. Um, and I think it's Laird that says you know we need to put the emphasis on the right place. And so we need to Vietnamize rather than de-Americanize. And so I, I think the military component is, um, is based on some, some longstanding questions that I don't think ever really get truly resolved. And I think first and foremost is where is the main threat? What's the most dangerous threat to the South Vietnamese um, political entity? Is it an external threat from North Vietnam? Uh, and, and a largely conventional threat with the North Vietnamese army? Or is it an internal threat with this, um, the Southern insurgency, the National Liberation Front, uh, um, pejoratively called the Viet Cong, um, and those forces, the, the People's Liberation um, Armed Forces? And the problem with Vietnamization is, as um, previous to Nixon's administration, you, you kind of have this divvying up of responsibility where the Americans will, will focus mostly on the main force units and the South Vietnamese will focus more on the insurgency, or at least conceptually that's how it's planned out. Um, as President Nixon decides that we're going to start withdrawing and, and Vietnamize the war, now both of those missions fall to the Vietnamese armed forces, South Vietnamese armed forces. And so I, this is a hard thing, I think, in terms of Vietnamization, is where is the priority? Do you focus on Vietnam, Vietnamizing um, the ARVIN, the South Vietnamese Arm, Army, um, to focus mostly on a main force threat, a conventional threat, or on an insurgency threat? And I'm not so sure that ever fully gets resolved, because at the end of the day, that army has to do both. And then I think from the, the political um, aspect of it, which is also economic, is, um, is how to leave something stable behind. That this American presence that's grown up since the early 1960s has, um, in one sense, created a false economy in South Vietnam. And so that withdrawal is going to have clearly an economic impact. Um, the devastation that's occurred... Uh, the social dislocation that's occurred inside South Vietnam is going to have to be resolved in some sense because that's going to have an impact on the political structure. Um, you've had, you know, 
quite literally millions of, of refugees inside South Vietnam of a population of about 16 and a half, 17 million. And at, at certain points, there are a million refugees, war, wartime refugees at, at one point or another. Um, so to think about, you know, um, that ratio and, and how much of your population is being dislocated by the war, that's going to have an impact on the political entity that's left behind. And then I think ultimately it's a, um, it's a struggle to um, work with the two regime to, to get a sense of how best it um, incorporates all of these dissenting voices. Should the two regime um, incorporate communists into their government um, or not? Um, and as uh, Nixon and Kissinger are trying to negotiate a withdrawal from Vietnam, uh, Hanoi is adamant that um, the two regime has to go. And so that complicates this Vietnamization process even further because with the negotiation piece, um, the North Vietnamese delegation is demanding to Dr. Kissinger that, look, two has to go. This has to be part of the, um, the peace settlement. Um, and clearly, as to get back to your earlier point about credibility and prestige, that's a, that's a non-starter for Kissinger as he's nego negotiating. Um, so I, I think, again, it's, it's important for um, uh, not just scholars, I think, but, but anybody looking back on this period about um, just the complexities of, of just this one aspect of it, right, in terms of, um, of how, do I, how do I give President Nixon what he wants here, right? And if Vietnamization is a key pillar of his strategy to depart from Vietnam, how do I make this happen in a manner that, that works for him as the president? Um, and, and just based on what I said, I think about how difficult that is to, um, to provide for him. It's, it's pretty amazing. You write that <clears throat> Nixon as vice president believed that Dwight Eisenhower's threat to breach the nuclear threshold helped end the Korean war. Right. Um, what did Nixon through the use of the so-called, uh, madman theory think he could do the same thing with Vietnam, especially, especially with, uh, also having the policy of Vietnamization. How do you reconcile those two? Yeah, I I think the madman theory has been a bit overdone. Um, I think that uh, I, I just don't think that that President Nixon um, was uh, was that irrational um, that he was just going to you know decide one day to wake up and I'm, I'm going to start using tactical nuclear weapons to. Um, um, to finish this thing off. But what I think he does realize coming out of his experiences of vice president is that the threat of military force is still a viable part and an integral part of strategy. And so um, as he's coming in, um, if we if we just kind of take the that one episode where he's talking with Haldeman about, you know, if I can prove to, if, you know, we can, we can let Hanoi know that, that Nixon's a madman and he's irrational and, you know, um, they'll better be able to deal with um, Hanoi. If we kind of take that off the table for a moment, I think what Nixon does realize is that the threat of military force and the um, uh, and doing away with some of the limits that were imposed by the Johnson administration will help them disengage from Vietnam. And so ultimately, I think when you see um, the expansion of the war outside of South, Vietnam, South Vietnam's borders into Cambodia, into Laos, in a sense, that's the the rational aspect of the madman theory, right? That I'm going to use military force or the threat of military force to demonstrate to Hanoi 
that the military component of the strategy is still an integral part of it. And, um, and you see the same thing, I think, with, with bombing of, of North Vietnam proper, uh, Operation Linebacker, uh, both one and two. Um, and so my sense is it, it's, um, you know, when you look at the transcripts and you look at the archival material, I think what you have to do is, is take some of that, that, that rhetorical language out um, and, uh, and then take a look at, at how that language is actually put into policy. And the policy, as I mentioned, is, is that military force is, is part of strategy and, um, and is, a, is, is a component of how we're going to withdraw from Vietnam. Our guest today is Greg Dadis, professor of history at Chapman University and director of its Warren Society program. Our topic was the final years of American engagement in Vietnam, with a specific focus on the Nixon administration policy. His book is Withdrawal, Reassessing America's Final Years in Vietnam. Dr. Dadis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroida signing off. Mm-hmm.